0: passion for God and compassion for our neighbor reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ This is Crosswinds Church and now here's Pastor Jordan Gowing Let's start in prayer God we rejoice that you work all things together for those who fear you the good times and the bad times the ups and the downs the times where we seem close to you and the times where we feel like you're a million miles away. God, you work all things together for those who fear you. We just are so thankful for that. We ask that as we approach your word, even now, that you would come and you would speak to us. Teach us more of who you are and reveal us, reveal to us your heart for your people. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning again. Uh, Welcome to the Spencer campus of Crosswinds Church. We're excited to see all of you here this morning. Uh, Last week, as we were continuing our journey through the book of Genesis, we looked at probably one of the most well-known stories in the book of Genesis and in the Bible as a whole, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. If you missed it and you want to uh, just uh, talk and listen to to the reality of God's judgment, our our sermons are available online for you to check out. And, And as we looked at Genesis 19, this story last week, we encountered one of probably the most perplexing, uh, paradoxical characters in all of Scripture, and that was Lot. In fact, if we only had Genesis chapter 19 to uh, judge Lot's life on, we would probably conclude that he was not righteous. In fact, uh, even though he is Abraham's nephew, he has far more in common with the people of Sodom than he does with his uncle. But then we come to the New Testament. And as we look at the New Testament, we see in Second Peter 2 that Lot is called righteous. In fact, it says that his righteous soul is tormented by all of the stuff that he sees around him in Sodom. And this can be somewhat surprising to us. You look at Genesis 19, Lot is far from righteous. In fact, how can he be called righteous when it seems like he has no interest, no intention to follow God with his life? This difference of opinion between the Old Testament in Genesis 19 and the New Testament, 2 Peter chapter 2, can be a bit confusing for us, can make little sense to us until we look at the United States church. As we look at the church in the United States, we begin to make a little sense of Lot's life. After all, many of you have heard that the church in the United States is in decline. There have been polls that have uh, shown that we are declining in church attendance as a culture, as a whole. And while that is true in one sense, it's also a little bit misleading Church attendance as a whole is indeed in a, in a decline, but what the the truth is is that evangelical churches, churches that actually proclaim the word of God and believe the word of God, they're actually growing in attendance over the last several decades. And so, while church attendance is is one way to look at the decline of the church in general, it's not the best for us to look at. In fact, the the Princeton excuse me let me let me find this the Princeton Religious uh, Re- Research Center has actually said that as a whole, religiosity in the United States is is on the upward swing. We're seeing more people read their Bibles. We're actually seeing in a number of evangelical churches, we're seeing church attendance grow. And so while religiosity is on the upswing, the same poll actually shows that morality is on the decline. When asked questions about what they view as morally good and morally wrong, people began to show that our culture as a whole, and evangelicals included, are beginning to become less and less moral. The Gospel Coalition is a very popular website. A couple weeks ago, it posted an article on what is considered to be the most acceptable sin for our youngest generation today. That acceptable sin is cohabitation. It is estimated that over 80% of Christians will engage in sex before marriage. And that number is even higher for millennials. The amount of fornication is up among Christians in general. Our TV viewing habits has uh, virtually no uh, difference between evangelicals and those outside of the church. In fact, it wouldn't be too hard to find Christians who have seen the most recent episode of The Walking Dead. It wouldn't be too hard to find Christians who have seen the most recent episode of Game of Thrones or The Blacklist, who are up to date on Oprah or, or late night shows and more. Our television viewing habits are virtually identical to those who are outside of the church. Pornography and other immorality are prevalent throughout the church as well. Even though this uh, study is a bit dated, in the late 1980s, Christianity Today polled a number of their readers and asked them if they had ever done anything that they would consider to be sexually inappropriate. Over 45% of their readers said yes. Yes. I can only imagine what that number would be today with the prevalence of the internet and and access to pornography on the internet. When you think of the state of the church here in the United States, the situation of Lot isn't really all that unique. Lot isn't all that different than many of the people that we encounter in the church. In fact, if Lot attended church in the United States, he'd probably fit in a bit more than we would like to admit And in a way, Lot does attend church here in the United States because we all have more in common with Lot than we would ever like to tell others or think. This morning, we're going to look at that. We're going to discuss this paradox that is Lot's. We're going to discuss this paradox of both holy and unholy in the church today, of both righteous and unrighteous in the church today, within each and every one of us as well. And to do that, we're going to be in Genesis 19. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to Genesis 19. That's our text this morning. As we look at this passage, we're going to see the the life of Lot, and we're going to take it as a warning for us, one that we must take to heart. In fact, as we look at the life of Lot, we're really going to see five different myths that Lot believed. And I think that these are five myths that we in the church believe as well. Two words of caution as we begin this morning. When we talk about these kind of topics, this this is considered to be talking about worldliness or or the immorality in the church. Uh, there, There are two primary ways that people can respond. First of all, people can uh, get offended. They can just tune out what they're hearing because they don't like what they are hearing. And if you're offended this morning, uh, to that I respond, good. It is a good thing that the Spirit of God is convicting you. But do not dismiss or confuse what this text is saying about what it means to be holy, what it means to follow God, or try to rationalize your answers and your actions Instead, listen to the Spirit and let the Spirit work in your heart. So that's the first thing. Second warning, word of caution for us, is a number of people, when they hear these words, will oftentimes dismiss this just simply as legalism. As saying that this is just telling us how to have a relationship with God rather than responding to the relationship of grace that God has given us. There is a difference between legalism and obedience. Legalism is the attempt to establish or maintain our relationship with God based off of what we are doing. Whereas obedience is responding to what God has done with us with lives of purity, with lives of holiness, and lives of righteousness. If you feel the urge to compl- to claim that, that this is just legalism this morning, I encourage you to ask yourself, am I responding that way because this actually is legalism? Or am I responding that way because God is convicting me of things that I don't want to be convicted of? It's my hope and prayer that we look at this topic through the lens of James chapter 1. James 1.27, a very uh, important verse for us. It says this, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. To follow God faithfully, we have to hold both of those in tandem. We have to take care of those who are downcast, those who are oppressed. But we also have to keep ourselves unstained from the world. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. That we are seeking to be a people of God, for God, who are unstained from the world. And as we will see, Lot was the exact opposite of that. So let's start by first looking at what Lot was guilty of. What caused Lot to live in such a way where he was virtually indistinguishable from the people of Sodom? I think there are two answers, two things that Lot was guilty of. First, Lot was guilty of a love of money. Lot was guilty of a love of money. More broadly, he was guilty of both loving money as well as loving what money could buy him, what he could do with that. In other words, he was guilty of materialism. Genesis chapter 13 introduces us to Lot, really, and it says this in verse 10. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar that was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram set, uh, settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners before the Lord. So first time that we really get the chance to, to meet and, and to understand a little bit of what Lot is like. And we see that when he has the choice to settle in one location or another, he chooses the place where his crops will grow. He chooses, chooses the land that is very fertile, a good uh, soil for, for his animals, for his, for his livestock, for his crops. He goes to fertile land. And you might say, well, why is that? Well, it's the same reason any of us would as well. He goes there because it's better. But even more than that, he goes there because he knows that it'll increase his wealth. It'll be a place where he can grow in status and in wealth. Thousands of years later, thousands of miles later, the same problem is here in the United States Church as well. We suffer from a materialistic mindset. The average United States uh, household has over $15,000 in credit card debt. The average United States household has over 10 credit cards. The average United States household buys what it does not need with money it does not have in order to impress people that they do not like. That is the materialistic mindset that is all around us in our culture and the church is not immune to that in fact if you look studies show that the spending habits of christians and non-christians are virtually indistinguishable one of the best ways to to diagnose if someone has a materialism prod, a problem or, or a problem with loving money is to look at what they do with their money specifically if they give their money away After all, to the person who is materialistic, to the person who loves money, this is the most paradoxical thing for you to ever do. Why on earth would you give money away that you earned and that you can buy stuff with for yourself? This truth reveals the hearts of many Christians. The average adult Christian gives away less than 3% of their income. That is to everywhere. That includes the church, to nonprofit organizations, to relief efforts overseas, and your neighbor's Boy Scout down the street. 3%. And many of us are familiar with the idea of the tithe as our base level of gen- generosity in the— it's a, excuse me, it's commanded in the Old Testament. It's what is really considered the base level of generosity in the New Testament. It's giving away 10% of your income to the church or to, to God. If you look at churches and Christians as a whole, less than 8% of all adult Christians actually tithe. In fact, Christians in the United States spend seven times more on their own entertainment than they do on things of spiritual significance. Why is that? It's because we love money. It's because we love what money can get us. We love stuff. We as a culture, and the church is not immune to this, struggle with materialism. We struggle with consumerism. And in that way, we're not all that different from Lot. Lot was a man who struggled with loving money, and he loved what it could buy him. And we are quite similar. Second thing that Lot was guilty of was a love of pleasure. Lot was guilty of a love of pleasure. If we look just a chapter later, Genesis chapter 14, verse 12, it says this, They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, and this is the important part for us to see, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. It's just a chapter later from Genesis 13. Genesis 13, Lot is a nomad. He's living in tents, and he decides to settle on the outskirts of Sodom. But something happens between Genesis 13 and Genesis 14, and Lot moves into the city. He gets a house in the city. And you might ask, well, why on earth is Lot upgrading here? Well, it makes sense, after all. Life is easier when you don't have to live in a tent, but you can live in a city. It is more comfortable. It is more secure. It is closer to the pleasures of Sodom itself. Lot did this because he was searching for pleasure. And again, many of us can be said, the same thing can be said of us as well. Why is it that we spend more than seven times our income on entertainment than on God? It's because we love pleasure. Calvin Miller once wrote this. He said, our love of convenience trains us to believe that we have as much as we want, excuse me, that we can have as much as we want of whatever we want, whenever we want it. No matter what life gives us, we always want more. If you look at the amount of hours that, are, that we are given each and every day, outside of work, the discretionary time that we have is almost all given to the pursuit of pleasure. Like Lot, we struggle with a love of pleasure. You might be saying, why? What, what is the heart of this issue? And the answer is in the question. The heart is the problem. See, there's nothing intrinsically wrong with buying good farmland. In fact, it's wise and smart. There's nothing intrinsically wrong with wanting to move out of a tent and into a house. In fact, it can be smart and wise. But money and pleasure are only things. They're good things, but they're only things. They are great tools, and they are terrible gods. And for all of us, they are magnifying glasses, They show what our hearts are like. They reveal to us what our hearts are like. The way we use our money, the way we seek after pleasure, the attitude that we have about money, the attitude we have about pleasure, all of these things show us what our hearts are like. If you look at the Bible, Jesus says far more about money than he says about many other things. It's one of the most popular topics that Jesus has in the book uh, books of, of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Why is that? Some people would say it's because God wants their money. After all, that's what many people would say about the church. And, and maybe you think that as well, that we only talk about money because we want your money. But that's not true at all. Let me be loud and clear here. God doesn't care about your money. God cares about your heart. See, God knows that your heart and your money are intrinsically connected, that they are intertwined to a way that they will never be separated. Why does God ask for us to consider others? Why does God ask for us to be generous with our finances? Is because God cares about our hearts. Many of us are familiar with Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus says, where your heart is there, your treasure will be also. But the reverse is also true. Where your treasure is, is where your heart will be also. Where you spend your finances, that's where your heart is located. Why does Jesus talk so much about money? Why are we even mentioning this right now? It's because money makes a terrible master. Money makes a terrible God. If you care so much or too much about your finances to run after the things that don't honor God, God will speak to that. It's because God cares too much about you. God loves you too much to let you settle for loving money, loving pleasure, loving things as opposed to him because he has something far better for you. So as we look at Lot, as we look at this warning of Lot, we see two things that are really, really important for us as Christians in the United States today. Beware of a love of money and beware of an inordinate love of pleasure to the point where we seek that out in everything that we do. That being said, let's go ahead and jump into this passage looking at the five myths that Lot believed and the five myths that I believe many of us believe as well. Our first myth this morning is this. We need to be like the world in order to reach the world. We need to be like the world in order to reach the world. Genesis chapter 19 verse 1. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. Last week, we talked a little bit about the importance of the gate in ancient cities. We saw that the gate was really like the city hall. It was the place where the elders of the city would gather and they would conduct business with other people. They would welcome the foreigner into their gates. They would actually judge cases between different people who had disputes with one another. This was where the leaders of the city would sit. So, the fact that Lot is sitting in the gate shows us that he's one of the leaders of the city of Sodom. Right here, without saying it, this chapter is telling us that Lot is in a position of power. He's come a long way from Genesis 13, he's come a long way from the days when he was living in a tent. Because now he lives in a city, he owns a house, he is wealthy. And not only does he live in the city, but he is a leader in this city. I think there are several reasons for why Lot does this. I think there are several reasons why we can point to Lot's ascent in Sodom. Let's just assume the best of him. Let's just assume for, for just a few seconds that Lot, the reason why he rose to power, the reason he sought after power in Sodom, is because he wanted to use his position of authority to effect change in Sodom. He wanted to reach out to those around him who were wicked. After all, that's in line with what Second Peter says about him when it says this. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, God condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous lot, notice this, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as a righteous man, he lived among them day after day. He was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Notice what this passage calls a Lot. It calls him righteous multiple times and it actually calls him godly here at the end as well also says that he, as a righteous man, was distressed by everything that he saw around him. In fact, by living in Sodom, he was actually tormenting his soul because of the wickedness that he lived among. So this man is righteous. Lot is offended by the culture that he lives in. And yet, he also decides to keep silent about everything that he sees. He decides to keep silent about the wickedness all around him. He hated the wickedness all around him, but he kept quiet because he didn't want to lose his position of power. He wanted to hold on to that position of power just in case he could use it to bring change to the city around him. Now, as we all know from Genesis 19, this plan is very ineffective. After all, no one is saved except for Lot and his two daughters. But Lot tried it anyway. I want you to uh, just imagine for a second. This is a relatively silly illustration uh, that one pastor shares. I want you to imagine that you have a, a young child that you give a pair of white gloves to. And you tell that white ch- that little child to go play in the mud with those white gloves. What's going to happen to those gloves? Are the gloves going to become muddy or is the mud going to become glovey? Of course, the gloves are going to become muddy. The same thing can be said about us and immorality. Immorality is poisonous. We can't go and do immoral things and hope to make it a little less bad in God's eyes. We can't go do wrong things and make it a little less evil in God's sight. Immorality corrupts. It is a poison, and Lot did not realize that. So as we look at this first myth, ask yourself this question, am I compromising with the world? In order to seem more appealing? Am I compromising with the world in order to seem more appealing? And I am I watching movies that I have no business watching just so that way I can carry on a conversation with someone at work? Am I watching television shows that I have no business watching just so that way Christianity seems a little less weird in the eyes of the world? Am I listening to music that I shouldn't be listening to? Am I using language that I shouldn't be using? Am I going to events? Am I going to locations that I should not be going to? Am I dating people I should not be dating? Am I making purchases I should not be making? Am I even laughing at jokes that I should not be laughing at to make things a little less awkward for people? The other day, I was at High vee I was at Redbox checking out a movie. And this person walked by as I was checking out this movie and they said something just completely inappropriate said Oh, if you're looking for all the dirty movies, I already checked them all out It was a just a a normal I didn't know the guy just a very social, you know I say something you're supposed to laugh and we go on our merry way For many people that's something that you just respond and say ha 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 and, and you just go on your way That's an opportunity to show our difference from the world there's an opportunity to say and justify and rationalize. Well, can I say yes in this situation to make it seem like I'm a little less awkward in this man's sight? Are we laughing at jokes that we should not be laughing at to make ourselves "quote unquote" more appealing to those who are around us? Now, here's not what I'm, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that we should not have non-Christian friends. I'm not saying that. We shouldn't get to know those around us who don't know jesus after all if that were the case then jesus himself would have been guilty What I am saying is that even as we have those relationships with those who are outside of the church We must not participate in the same things that they do. We must remain unstained from the world It is a myth to believe that we can reach the world by becoming like the world That's our first myth Myth number two, we can have the same values as the world and not be influenced by it. We can have the same values as the world and not be influenced by it. See, Lot might have rationalized that he was ascending to his position of power as a way to reach those who are around him. But let's be honest, the main reason why Lot lived in Sodom and the main reason why he became a powerful person in Sodom is because he wanted the exact same thing that the people of Sodom wanted. He was indistinguishable from them. His values were the exact same. And Lot would have denied that. Lot would have said that he had vastly different values than the people of Sodom. But if we look at his actions, we see that they weren't all that different. You see, values lead to actions. And were Lot all that different from the people of Sodom? Let's take a look. Verse 6. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door behind him. And said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. If you really want to know someone's values, do not look at what they say. Instead, look at what they do. Look at the things that they do. Because that's what reveals the heart and the best. See, if a Christian watches the same television, has the same amount of credit card debt, is more focused on themselves than they are on eternity, you can conclude that they don't value the same thing that they confess they value. Actions speak louder than words. Jesus said something similar in Mark chapter 7. He said this, and he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. We cannot have the same values as the world and expect to not be influenced by it. So ask yourself, what do my thoughts and my actions reveal that I value? What do my thoughts and actions reveal that I value? Do they match my confession? Do they match what I profess to believe? What does my budget say about my values? What do my entertainment choices say about my values? Even your daydreams, the things that you focus on, the paradise that you create when no one else is watching, when you have some spare time, even that shows what you value. Do your values match your confession of faith. Myth number three. We can serve God while also serving the gods of this world. We can serve God while also serving the gods of this world. Take a look. Genesis 19, starting in verse 16, says this. As morning, excuse me, but he lingered. So the two men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. He said to him, "Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overflow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar." If you notice at the beginning of this section, the beginning of these verses, it tells us that Lot lingered. Lot lingered. Destruction is imminent in Sodom. Lot has been told the reason for this destruction. Lot has been told that no one will survive this destruction, and yet Lot lingers. Lot decides to stick around. Why? Simply put, it's because God is not Lot's master. Sodom and all that she stood for, her love of money, her love of pleasure, that was Lot's master. That was Lot's God. That's why Lot wants to flee to Zoar instead of fleeing to the hills. Zoar was uh, like a little mini Sodom. It was set for destruction just like the rest of the valley because it was just as wicked. And yet, Lot can't let go of Sodom. He can't let go of his desire for the world. And so, he pleads with God, he begs God to spare Zoar that he might have a little bit of it left. Jesus says something about having different masters. He says this in Matthew 6, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. When Jesus says this, he uses a very special word for money here. It was a, an ancient Palestinian word, not just for money, but for money personified. It was referring to money as a god It's this word mammon. Maybe you've heard of it. Jesus is talking about the fact that we will either serve one God or another. You will either serve the true God or you will serve money. Jesus is challenging his first century audience. He's challenging us as well. He's asking, who will you serve? Who will you serve? Will you serve God? Will you serve mammon? Will you serve another God like pleasure? For Lot, he clearly chose not to serve God, not to rely on God. He chose to follow and worship Sodom rather than God himself. The stakes are extremely high in this. So ask yourself, who will you worship? What will you worship? Will you worship God? Will you worship your money? Will you worship your search of pleasure? Will you worship yourself? The Bible is clear. You cannot serve multiple gods. You cannot serve God. And worship God while also at the same time worshiping the gods of our culture. We cannot serve multiple gods. That leads us to myth number four. We can change whenever we want. We can change whenever we want. Take a look at the ending, the tragic ending of Lot's wife here in verse 26. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Why did Lot's wife look back when she was told not to? The answer is found in in Luke chapter 17. Jesus is talking about the destruction that is coming on the last day, and he has this to say. He says, on that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. What Jesus is saying here, he's saying that Lot's wife chose, around, uh, chose to turn around because she could not leave her God. She could not leave her possessions. We need to just imagine the situation here that Lot's wife is in. She's just encountered two angels. These two angels have said that they are going to destroy this city on behalf of God. They have spoken that they are going to save the family of Lot, and they have shown and given legitimacy to their claim by divinely intervening to save Lot just a few moments earlier. She has been given every reason to believe what they are saying. And in spite of that, she turns back. This is why this is so important for us. Because I think we're oftentimes a little naive about our ability to leave behind our gods. Lot's wife was unable to abandon her God of her possessions. It's naive to think that we can do the same if we are not careful. The more that we worship an idol, the more that we serve an idol, the harder it gets to leave that idol behind. The more trapped we find ourselves to that idol. This is why people struggle with habitual sin. It's because they keep going back and back to that which they have served for so long. So ask yourself. Am I serving the wrong God? If so, change before it's too late. I'm not saying that we don't have free will. That's not at all what I'm saying here. What I am saying is that we are controlled by our desires. We are influenced by our desires. If we desire something, we will make decisions based along those same lines. No longer that we feed those desires... The more that we give in to those desires, the harder it becomes to turn our backs on them. We see that in Lot's wife's case. She found, it un, she found herself unable to turn her back on the God that she had served for so long. If you saw an alcoholic who decided to keep alcohol in the home, you would say that they are setting themselves up for failure. They're setting themselves up for a relapse, and, and, and you'd be right. The question is, why do we keep our other idols around? Why do we keep our other gods around our houses? If we struggle with watching television shows that we should not watch, don't just commit to not watch that channel. Get rid of your television for a season. If you find yourself struggling with watching certain movies, don't just go put them in a box in the basement. Get rid of them. If you find yourself struggling with sharing things on Facebook that you should not share, don't just try not to. Get rid of Facebook for a season. If you find yourself spending too much, get rid of your credit cards. If you find yourself dressing immodestly, get rid of those clothes. If you are serving the wrong God, there is no step that you can take that is too radical. There is no action that you can take that is too severe. Be careful what you worship because it changes you greatly. And finally, myth number five. We can teach our children to pursue God while we pursue the world. We can teach our children to pursue God while we pursue the world. Take a look at the, the epilogue to the story of, of Lot. Just a, a tragic ending to this man's life. Now Lot went up out of Zohar and lived in the hills with his two daughters. For he was afraid to live in Zohar. So he lived in a cave with his two young daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger... Our father is old, and there is not a man on the earth to come in to us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring for our father. So they made their father drink wine that night. And the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. This text shows us the end result of all of these other myths that we have looked at. It's the most dangerous of all of the myths that we've looked at as well. It's most dangerous because our actions do not just affect ourselves. Our children learn far more with their eyes than they do with their ears. A couple of weeks ago, my son Silas... He's nine months old. Uh, he was a little grumpy, a little crabby, and my wife was out getting groceries. And so I decided to take it upon myself to do whatever I possibly could to make him a little happier. And so I took his pacifier, and I put it in my mouth, and I just stared up at the ceiling, and I shot it out of my mouth. It was really juvenile, um, and it worked. He, he loved it. He thought it was hilarious. And I started patting myself on the back. I was like, you know what? No one can make this little boy laugh like I can. Later that night, I'm trying to put him to sleep, and Silas is one of those boys who uh, he will not go to sleep unless he has a pacifier in his mouth. So I'm trying to put him to sleep, and all of a sudden he goes, (laughs) I'm like, uh uh-oh, and grab it, put it back in his mouth, again, over and over again. It reminded me very vividly that children learn far more from our lifestyles, from what we do, than they do learn from what we say. So ask yourself one final question. What is my lifestyle teaching my children? What is my lifestyle teaching my children? See, Lot's daughters, they learned a lot from their father. They learned how to love Sodom. They learned how to serve other masters than God. And that's how the story ends. That's how the story of Lot ends, and such a a tragic ending to the story of this so-called righteous man, that even though Sodom is destroyed, what Sodom stands for, worldliness, the love of money, the love of pleasure, the love of all these things that, as opposed to God, still endures in their hearts. So ask yourself, what is my lifestyle teaching my children? Your words will make no difference if your values, if your gods, if your masters, if they say something completely different. What is your lifestyle teaching your children? That really sums up what this text is trying to tell us. You cannot be a light to the world. You cannot be a light of the world if you are indistinguishable from the world. If you're trying to reach the world and you look like the world, you will be radically ineffective. So that's why this text is telling us to say no to materialism, to consumerism. This is why this text is telling us to say no to the love of money, to say no to our unending search for pleasure and entertainment, to say no to the influences of the world, whether that's a person or television or social media or credit cards or anything else, to say no to all those things. But this text isn't just telling us to say no. This text is also telling us to say yes. See, if this text was just saying no, then this would be lifeless legalism. It would just be a simple set of rules for us to follow in order to be honoring God and to earn our relationship with him. But that's not what is in view here. If you look at the larger story of the Bible, and especially comparing Lot to Abraham, we see that we're supposed to not just say no, but also say yes. We say yes to God because that is life-giving. We say yes to God when it comes to money. That means being generous with our money. That means being a joy-filled steward of our money. That doesn't mean that we give all of our money away. But it does mean that our money cannot be an idol. And it cannot be our God. And it means that we say yes to the pleasures of God that are all around us. The pleasures of God that we see in nature. The pleasures of God that we see in human relationships, in community, even in our relationship with God. All good, God-given things that he desires for us to find pleasure in. And ultimately, we rely upon the grace of God. See, that's the real reason why Lot is considered righteous in Second Peter chapter 2. It's not because of anything that he does, but it's because of what God has done for him. And the same thing is true for each and every one of us. We are not considered righteous to God because we remain unstained from the world. We are considered righteous in God's eyes because of what he has done for us. Do we respond to that gift of God with obedience? Absolutely. But we also don't beat ourselves up when we are trying to follow God and we fail every now and then. Friends, take the warning of Lot seriously. Let us take it seriously to be a people who are the light of the world by not being like the world and not being stained by the world. Let us commit to that as a church. Let us pray. God, we are so thankful and grateful for all that you do for us. We are so thankful for the fact that because of what Jesus has done, we are considered righteous in your sight. Is a righteousness that not comes from our, for our own standing, our own efforts, but only from you. And so we thank you for that. And God, I pray that from that position of your righteousness given to us, that we would try to be holy. That we would try to honor you in all things, especially when it comes to the pursuit of pleasure, our entertainment, especially when it comes to our finances, when it comes to our money. God be gracious to us as we seek to follow you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.